0: hello and welcome to the gestalt it rundown for wednesday january the 11th my name is tom hollingsworth and if it's raining outside for you today i've got some good news it's national step in a puddle and splash your friend day and uh, joining me is the man that i would rather no one else in the world i'd rather
1: splash with a puddle mr stephen foskett stephen welcome to the show Uh, It's good to be here on National Milk Day, and I don't want to combine those two days because I don't want to splash my friend with milk. Exactly. That
0: that would uh, probably lead to some very stinky things, unlike our news lineup, which is definitely ultra fresh right out of the jug, ready to go. So we're gonna jump right into uh, some of the coverage. And Steven, uh, the first story is uh, a storage story. So I'm sure you're very excited to hear that Western Digital is restarting talks with Kyosha about a potential merger between the brands. You may recall that there were talks back in 2021 that ended up really going nowhere. Uh, Western Digital is looking at some strategic alternatives is the term that was used thanks to the double whammy of a declining flash memory market and interest from noted activist, investor, and Tasmanian devil, Elliot Investment Management. Details of the proposal include these two providers being joined into one publicly traded company, but of course, things are still in the very early stage, according to people who probably shouldn't be talking to the press, but are probably talking to them anyway. Western Digital and Kyosha already do have a partnership um, in a joint venture producing flash memory chips, but this would be kind of a much bigger deal. So, Stephen, is the merger finally going to happen, or are we destined to play the will-they-want-they they, Ross and Rachel game for the
1: next 10 years? Well, I guess kind of like one of those sitcom situations where you're kind of like, will-they-won't-they, they? you really know that they will. I mean, that's the ultimate payoff here, and I think that's the ultimate payoff here. I mean, it doesn't make any sense for anybody but Western Digital to merge with Kyoksia, but uh, until they do, I think that we're going to have to wait and see um, you know, what the exact terms are. I think the most interesting angles about this, number one, are that the result would be a single entity that produces about a third of the world's NAND flash chips. So basically producing, um, you know, kind of getting us to that oligarch situation that we're in with uh, hard drives already, where, you know, almost all of the world's hard drives are produced by Western Digital and Seagate um, with, you know, uh, Toshiba producing a very small uh, as the small number three. Um, we might end up with that same situation with NAND Flash as well uh, as a result of this. And frankly, that's where mature markets go. Um, and, and as I said, I mean, it doesn't make any sense that these two things, uh, that these two companies wouldn't merge. I mean, I can't imagine anybody else uh, swooping in and making this happen. Um, and I think that this would kick off another round of consolidation that could stretch throughout the year. The most interesting angle on this, though, is that um, it's sort of a regulatory angle. In other words, would uh, the market welcome a dominant uh, NAND flash competitor? And also, would it welcome that dominant NAND flash competitor also being one of the dominant hard drive makers? And some of the whispers that I'm hearing are that this could force uh, Western Digital to spin off its hard drive operations, which would be interesting. But of course, this would not be new for Western Digital. I mean, the company was founded as a CPU company and uh, only got into hard drives and storage uh, as an additional market and then kind of moved into that. Um, It's happened before. It could happen again. And maybe that would satisfy people. Another uh, thought, though, is that this would essentially make an American company uh, responsible for the majority of the world's flash. Um, Would Japan appreciate that? Would South Korea? Would China? Would China? and they might all have some restrictions as well. Ultimately, they will. They'll figure out a way to make this happen, and it'll happen, and we'll tell you about it here on the rundown. Tom, it's a new year, which means that it's time for AWS to change its default settings. Uh, Before you get upset, this is actually a good change. Amazon announced that S3 will now encrypt all new objects by default. This long requested change ensures that all objects saved to the storage system will be encrypted without user intervention. The encryption method used, SSE S3, has been available for quite a while, uh, but required user intervention until now. Tom, uh, I know it sounds like storage, but this is a security question. Uh, what do you think? I think it's about damn time.
0: I mean, I've been saying this to Amazon for how many years now? The solution to all of your embarrassing S3 leaky bucket problems is to secure the stupid things. And Amazon made an announcement. The announcement was actually made at the very last of December. So naturally, nobody saw it. Uh, but on uh, the 5th of January, the uh, the setting was enabled by default. So by now, um, if you create a new S3 bucket in uh, Amazon, in AWS, it will be encrypted by default with this method. Uh, I believe they're doing a rolling upgrade of all the rest of them. So by April, all of them will be done. Um, but here's the thing. I get that Amazon's um, kind of washing their hands of the problem was, well, we provided encryption. You just didn't turn it on. Uh, Let me change the the terms in there and see if it makes you feel any better. Uh, We put seatbelts in your car. If you didn't wear them, it's your fault. No, what you have to do is you have to make it so apparent to the users that they need to do this, um, that either you won't allow them to create an S3 bucket at all until they click the box that says encryption, which uh, will reduce your revenues, or you just transparently click the box for them, which is what they're doing. And I think it's great because from a security perspective, it allows Amazon to say that even if someone does violate the, uh, you know, the, the bucket and is able to lift the data off, they're not gonna be able to just easily use it. I mean, obviously if an authorized user accesses the bucket, they'll decrypt the data and they'll be able to see everything. But if someone like accidentally leaves it open to the public and the public can get in, they won't be able to see what's there because the data will have an additional level of that. And I think that this is something that's super important because you can't trust people to do the right thing either because they don't realize it's the right thing to do or worse yet, especially in a world of cloud, things are moving so fast that one more checkbox to click is often something that gets forgotten. Even in the best of best practices, it's easy to overlook one little thing. The problem is, is that if you overlook, I don't know, like the subnet mask on your IP system, it's going to throw an error back and say, oh, well, you know, that's not going to work and you're going to go back and fix it. But if you, uh, if it's an optional checkbox that m- increases your security posture a hundred fold, but you just forget to click it and it doesn't throw a warning whenever you uh, uh, agree to it that's a different issue to have so i applaud amazon for stepping up and saying hey we're finally going to enable the thing we told you to turn on anyway and i would expect that nobody's going to notice except for the hackers who are now going to kick the can down the road a little bit more because an easy way for them to uh get data just disappeared all right stephen you may recall uh, that we covered a story on the rundown late last year that is finally official fungible has been acquired by microsoft now we talked about this in our previous story about how they're going to be integrating the dpus into microsoft azure the fungible team is officially reporting to the data center infrastructure team however there was a curious note in the very short story from microsoft uh, they're going to be working on multiple dpu solutions steven Given the phrasing of that statement and the fact that a number of DPU manufacturers in the industry are not happy about Microsoft buying fungible, do you think Microsoft is going to continue to keep this as an internal only offering? Or do you think maybe they might offer fungible assets commercially once again?
1: Well, that's an interesting idea, but I don't think so. Um, (laughs) I think everybody should just calm down. Uh, No, I I think that this is an acquisition uh, signals Microsoft wanting to have a great um, competitor for AWS Nitro. Uh, Fungible was good technology. It's a good team. Uh, Having it as part of Azure, I think, is about uh, checking the boxes and making sure that they have a great competitive offering. Um, Yeah, I know that there's some concerns out there about uh, maybe Microsoft might enter the hardware market. Um, I just don't see it. I think that Microsoft will probably be focused on producing uh, the best Azure they can have. Uh, To me, the big aspects of this story, number one, are that the DPU market has now matured to the extent that, frankly, um, most of the DPU companies have been absorbed into uh, server platform vendors like Intel, AMD, and NVIDIA or into hyperscalers, which is where the whole concept came from, like you know, Amazon and Microsoft. And uh, I think that uh, this is really a sign that a DPU is, um, well, I don't want to say a feature, not a product. It's uh, it's part of the platform, not something you add to the platform. In other words, I can see uh, definitely there's tremendous value. And we're going to talk about that with Intel's Sapphire Rapids launch. There's tremendous value in accelerators uh, DPUs provide a lot of accelerator capability. And that's why, uh, as I mentioned, uh, you know, Intel, AMD, and NVIDIA have been really kind of doubling down on uh, bringing DPUs to market. Uh, same thing is true in the cloud. And I think that that's really what we're seeing here. I think that we're seeing that uh, a true, you know, moving the development to really focus on the cloud stack is a good move overall for cloud customers. It's a good move for Microsoft as it was for Amazon, And frankly, it signals that maybe a DPU company was not such a great idea after all. And to me, that's really the takeaway here. Uh, DPUs are part of a platform, not a product. Tom, you wanna know what it looks like when a government agency is finally tired of stalling and inaction? Well, I think everybody would, but uh, we actually have it here. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, the FAA, Airline Oversight Agency has announced a sweeping order that sets 2024 as the deadline for aircraft operators to either install new altimeters or shield existing ones to eliminate the supposed threat from C-band 5G radios. The new rules come amidst a flurry of back-and-forth arguing from providers like AT&T and airlines. The providers had slowed the rollout of C-band tech near airports as a show of good faith to allow them to fix their altimeters and to get 5G to market. Uh, But the lobbyists for the airlines wanted to make the ban permanent. The FAA eventually thought differently, which is probably the right move. Approximately 8,000 aircraft will need to be adjusted, with about 200 of those requiring a full replacement of activity. Uh, Tom, do you think the FAA did the right thing here? I think the FAA did the
0: only thing they could do, which, uh, as I was talking about in the the pre-show discussion, um, if you're a parent and your kids are bickering with each other, eventually you just step in and go, I'm the parent. I'm in charge. Go to your rooms, and that's effectively what the FAA did here. They looked at all of the data, and and by the way, if you read the uh, the linked stories that you'll see out there from other places, um, most everybody else in the world thinks that we're insane because they're like, your job is to tell them to shut up and do what they're supposed to do. Why are you analyzing all of this stuff? So the FAA did what the FAA does. They're going to take their time. They're going to go through things, and then they came down with their ruling, which was why are you not fixing things they told the airlines that they were going to need to fix or filter the signals out from these altimeters and what do the airlines do with all of the time that they were bought by have by forcing att and verizon to slow down the c-band rollout oh yeah they said well we don't want to fix things and you need to make it permanent because i don't want to have to do anything and the faa finally said enough and the funny thing is now the airline uh, lobbying and and uh, industry agency, you know, the, the, the board they put together to make them look really good, their statement on it was, okay, well, I guess we'll do that. But you know, there's a supply chain problem. And it's going to be so hard for us to find stuff to put in the planes in a year. And you should have given us more time. And oh, my God, just go to your room and clean it. Like, that's how this feels to me. Granted, I, I will say that the real solution to this is just don't put the 5G towers anywhere in the flight path of an airplane that could be using ILS or anything like that. Okay, that, that that's a given, and we'll probably end up having to get there to some point, especially in areas like that. But the amount of feet dragging and stalling and whining and complaining coming from the airline industry and the fact that they managed to get a whole bunch of airlines put on the exemption list anyway, like, you know, the 747-8, which granted, it really isn't even flying much very more, very much except for the fact that it's a cargo airplane. Like, come on. 200 of these things need to be replaced out of something like the 8,000 that you're going to have to make some modifications to. That's it. Quit it. Otherwise, I'm going to ground you and take away your toys and make you sit here and think about what you've done. All right. Now it's time to talk about The big story, the big story of the week, and possibly even one of the biggest stories of the the last few months. And uh, I feel like that there should be like trumpet music right now or something, because if you were curious as to when Intel would actually launch their fourth generation Xeon processors, consider your curiosity satisfied, because the answer is yesterday. Intel's long-rumored Sapphire Rapids architecture is now official as of January the 10th. Uh, Biggest takeaways from the official coverage that we're seeing on all the great posts that were released yesterday are the inclusion of accelerators on the CPU die to help increase performance for specific workloads like SSL encryption, 5G, and networking that's built on Intel CPDK. Uh, These features do curiously come with something called Intel On Demand, which is a service that allows you to purchase CPUs now for a reduced cost and then unlock those accelerators at a future date for an additional fee. There's even discussion for two of Stephen's favorite topics, that would be Optane and CXL. But Stephen, you have been on top of this release as we've been seeing it rolling forward to its inevitable conclusion. Tell us what stands out
1: in this announcement for you. Well, I think the takeaway here is that Sapphire Rapids uh, gives Intel a really competitive server platform to AMD. I think that I, I can say that again. Yes, I know that AMD's Genoa is impressive. I know that there's some big numbers in there, but for the reality of the market, for the real world, for the, the, the way that people are using and buying and, and deploying these servers, uh, Sapphire Rapids 100% is competitive with AMD Genoa. There's no reason that a company has to switch to AMD or, in order to avoid you know, egg on their face. Which was kind of the case uh, previously uh, until this announcement. So, so, that being said, let me explain my uh, conclusion here. So, first off, we do have to say that AMD still leads in terms of uh, some of the big sort of number benchmarky kind of things core count, uh, gigahertz, uh, amount of system memory, uh, number of uh, memory channels, number of PCIe lanes things like that, all of those things on a per socket basis, AMD is still in the lead on. AMD is uh, easily competitive on many of the things that that has been a sort of a challenge for Intel. In other words, things like um, total uh, system throughput, um, uh, IPC, which is the performance of each core, um, CXL, as you mentioned, the deployment of CXL and PCIe5 and DDR5 memory. Um, AMD a, a, AMD's right there. AMD has also moved into some of Intel's markets with some special purpose CPUs uh, in the Genoa launch, and uh, many people expect them to launch even more special purpose CPUs on this same platform soon. That being said, Intel just ran a lap around AMD in terms of SKUs and delivering basically a CPU for everyone. And I think that that's the real message here of of Sapphire Rapids is that this is a CPU platform that scales basically everywhere, even down to the workstation, which earned about two seconds of mention during the announcement. Uh, But yeah, there are Xeon Sapphire Rapids workstation CPUs all the way up through the data center, the cloud, embedded IoT, networking, all the way into HPC. That is the story here. The story is that Intel is delivering a next-generation server platform for literally everywhere servers are going to be deployed. Now let's talk about some specifics. So first off, uh, Sapphire Rapids uh, basically ups what you expect to be upped. It uses a new core, it has a bunch of new accelerators, some of which are really, really impressive, doing things like um, Network offloads, encryption, video processing, machine learning processing, uh, all these things. Uh, the deep learning boost is up to ninety-six percent quicker. You know, uh, the Quick Assist technology is up uses eighty-four percent less cores. A lot of these things are are really really impressive. The problem with accelerators on die, though, is that they're expensive because basically you have to spend all this money developing them, deploying them. You actually have to create them and physically on the die and then ship them. And that makes the chips more expensive because you're buying a chip that has CPUs and caches and I.O., yeah, but it also has these accelerator blocks. And customers may or may not want to use those because, remember, these systems are not, I mean, it's not a general purpose platform. This is an everything platform for every purpose. And if you're deploying, you know, in a 5G tower, you have very different requirements than if you're building an HPC cluster to do machine learning processing or a storage server or a network device or something. And all of those need their own special complement of accelerators. So instead of making 500 SKUs, what Intel has done is made a, a pretty flexible platform. It's flexible first in, in, in terms of what you're actually buying. There's essentially three kind of physical form factors here. There's a monolithic chip that is basically everything on one piece of silicon, just like it's always been done for the history of of computing. Uh, there's a uh, and that, and that kind of is the the, the the leader in terms of of price, in terms of of uh, power efficiency in terms of kind of what you're gonna get. Uh, You're gonna buy just a single CPU, a single chip. It doesn't have too many cores, but it's got everything you need sort of on one. Then there's a tile-based chip, which is uh, sort of how Intel gets up to 60 cores on a single processor. Um, it also includes a lot more functionality. It's a lot more stuff. Kind of what Apple's doing with the M1 Pro and Max and all that kind of stuff. Um, and this also uses Intel's EMIB uh, technology to kind of you know, put multiple tiles on the same thing, uh, just like their Ponte Vecchio and, and the Falcon Shores uh, and, and all these other you know, things that they've, that they've done recently. So this kind of points the into direction that Intel's going to take with this tile-based architecture. And that gives you a lot more stuff basically. And then finally, there's the XBM, which is the tile based, but also includes um, high bandwidth memory on chip, which again, is kind of what Apple's doing, but but not with HPM. And essentially, what that is, is that's the ultra high performance core for HPC applications. And I think that may be a dark horse for enterprise and cloud applications too. if you if, if you've got something that's really memory constrained, and you want it to just rock with memory. Well, the new Xeon Max is pretty amazing in terms of memory because it's got all this high bandwidth memory right there on the core. Anyway, so you've got these three physical form factors. Each of those includes all sorts of accelerators on the chip. And, and when we talk about accelerators, there are a ton of them. But probably the big kind of headline stories are Quick Assist, which Intel has had for a while, but they've improved it now, which allows you to kind of offload a bunch of, uh, a bunch of things like compression and crypto and stuff like that. There's uh, uh, the Data Streaming Accelerator, which is all about uh, moving data around for high performance and data analytics applications. There's the Dynamic Load Balancer, DLB, which is all about moving data around for things like packets and networking. And then there's the IAA, In-Memory Analytics Accelerator, which again is back for uh, big data and analytics and databases and so on. It can get a little confusing because seriously, there's probably 20 different accelerators here. And as we said, most of these accelerators are on most of the chips, but most of them are turned off. And that's what Tom was talking about here a second ago. Intel's gonna have this on-demand thing, which means that you can basically turn on, you can activate a feature that is physically present on your CPU. And I know you're thinking, oh, that's like BMW with their heated seats that you gotta pay for. And that's not really what Intel's going for here. I think what this is all about is allowing Intel to not have to produce an infinite number of SKUs, they can produce a chip that then can be licensed, maybe even before the customer buys it, maybe the customer never even sees this on demand activity, maybe they just buy a server with these four things turned on, and it gets shipped to them. And it is literally the same chip as if they had gotten it without those things turned on but it's not like it's dynamic dynamic. It's it's just, we're making one thing and we can use it in multiple applications. And frankly, I think that's smart because again, Intel's goal here is to serve every market from the smallest to the largest with a reasonable number of chips. Uh, what do you think about that story, Tom? So I think it's a
0: really fascinating way that someone who looks at, the chip market and realizes that they need to have better intelligence on how to package these things. Would go about doing it, and and let's be fair, we we're, we're Pat Gelsinger fanboys. We we've said that a number of times, but I think this is actually a, this is an engineering solution to a product problem, and I love it. So think about it like this: you've got a chip that has these accelerators turned on, and there's a mix of accelerators, right? So something like 50 SKUs that Intel has right now, which is awesome. Instead of like 500 of them because every one of those little accelerator combinations could cause uh, a different skew to be produced and, and and let's be clear there there are some chips you can buy that just don't have these accelerators period they're just missing from the die and then there are some who have them but you don't necessarily have to turn them on so where would that come in valuable so let's say you're doing uh, a deployment of some new application or something like that and you're like, okay I know I need SSL and I know I need this other thing but I'm not sure if I want to use GPDK or not. Like, I've got these ideas, but man, I have to make this decision right now. Like, if I buy the chip that doesn't have the DPDK acceleration in it, I can't use it. Intel said, hey, don't worry about it. Use Intel on demand, and you can enable it later. So, brilliant. I I don't have to, if I have a choice between two different chips, I can totally pick the better one. But here's the value. Once you turn that on, I know that you're using it. You're licensed to use it, which means I can track the revenue that that given accelerator provides to the system. And we've seen this with licensing schemes a lot. Even if you make the license practically like free, like like as little as possible, what you're really doing is tracking the usage and you're collecting data. So 75% of the people who use these two accelerators also use this other one. So when someone in that line of business tries to go and buy a chip, My recommendation is, no, 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 don't buy that one, buy this one, because the odds are good, you're going to want to use that. And in these situations, these two uh, accelerators are never really used together. So we're going to reduce that skew out of our lineup. This allows them to really position product for the market that's buying it. So like you said, Intel wants to be the everything CPU company but they don't wanna be the everything in the catalog CPU manufacturer. We don't wanna have a thousand SKUs for every possible combination of accelerators you could ever need. But boy, once we have the right analytics, we just happen to have everything you could possibly want because those are the things that you're buying. Plus it allows them to know where to allocate resources inside of Intel. Man, everybody's using the SSL encryption. We need to make sure that that team has enough people to uh, produce things. Now, the only thing I will say, And i've I've got to say this because i'm the security guy having this many accelerators inside of a system especially if they're just laying fallow and not being actively used because you didn't buy the on-demand license doesn't mean that they're not a security attack surface in fact i would say that you know if intel suddenly gets a report that the uh the 5g accelerator on that chip is being used and you didn't license it that should throw a huge security alert because it means somebody found a backdoor into the system and uh yeah you need to get that patch so I, ultimately, I think this is going to be a good thing for Intel. And it kind of leads to that whole software defined future. I mean, we've talked about it for a lot of, you know, we built the technology, we put the technology in there, you're not necessarily using the technology right now. But boy, all you got to do is buy this extra $9.95 a month license, and suddenly you can get all this cool technology.
1: Yeah, and I think it's important to point out, too, that it looks from the pricing, at least the list pricing. Now, remember, nobody pays list pricing for servers. Um, from the list pricing, it looks like Intel really isn't even charging for these accelerators when you're not using them, when they're turned off. They really only do charge when you turn on the on-demand license, which is which is pretty cool. Um, you know, they're basically, um, you know, putting the silicon out there and then uh, charging only the people that want them to some extent. Um, you know, it's, it's price competitive with AMD. Let's dive into a couple more uh, interesting areas. Now you did mention, of course, uh, Optane. Uh, this this release includes the Persistent Memory 300 series, uh, codename ProPass, which we've basically known about forever. Um, we've, we've been expecting this for a long time. Uh, we got it teased at our uh, field day events in 2022. Uh, we've been reading about it. Uh, there was a leak earlier, I think last week, of what it is essentially, CrowPass is DDR5 Optane, um, and 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 that's great. Um, it allows you to uh, to accelerate performance. It's a lot faster than the uh, than the previous Optane ever was, and you know it works fine. Um, one note that I do have to make is that if you do use Optane persistent memory, uh, it does slow down system memory somewhat. You can't use the fastest DDR5, but you can't use the fastest DDR5 on every um, uh, Sapphire Rapids SKU anyway. So it's not like it's going to slow down to like DDR3 speed or something like that. Uh, the other thing uh, that I'll point out, CXL, um, yes, uh, <laughs> as the host of Utilizing CXL podcast, a weekly podcast here on Gestalt IT, I have to point out that Intel does indeed support CXL. And uh, we kind of knew that because we've been actually seeing Sapphire Rapids development systems with CXL running for like a year. Um, so this was the worst kept secret in the industry. Um, However, there's a big head-scratcher here, because all those systems, all those development systems, as we've been talking about all season long on utilizing CXL, they're memory expansion. Well, guess what? Sapphire Rapids doesn't officially support memory expansion on CXL. And if you're like, wait, what? Yeah, that's true. Um, Memory buffers is a so-called CXL Type 3. That's not officially supported in the release version of (laughs) Sapphire Rapids. In fact, the Type 1 and Type 2 are honestly not all that compelling. Uh, Most people are really looking at Type 3 as sort of the initial CXL rollout. AMD does support it in uh, Genoa, Uh, Intel doesn't. Um, With that being said, I wouldn't worry too much. They're gonna support it, obviously, because we know it works. Because like I said, we've been seeing it for a year. It's the development platform for all these things. I I think that Intel is just being really cautious about rolling this uh, new thing out and making sure that it's qualified before they say that it's qualified, which, you know, I'll give them some props for. Um, let me just say, again, as somebody who focuses a lot on CXL, it's going to be supported. Hold, hold, hold your horses. It's fine. Um, similarly, uh, Intel uh, kind of conversely supports 2DPC uh, uh, memory, uh, whereas AMD doesn't yet. But there again, uh, hold your horses. Don't count on that. I think AMD is going to support that too. It's just a thing. Um another thing you might hear people talking about is the fact that uh, AMD's got Intel beat and I actually mentioned it earlier in terms of the number of PCIe channels and memory channels and cores but there's a big asterisk there and that's that Intel actually has AMD beat in terms of all those things. And you might be saying, "Wait, what?" Because Intel supports 4 and 8 socket configurations with Sapphire Rapids. Now here's a little weird thing. So Intel had 4 and 8 Saf, um, uh, in the Ice Lake generation, but it wasn't really Ice Lake. Cooper Lake was basically Skylake, which was the previous generation, kind of revved uh, halfway to Ice Lake in order to support four and eight for hyperscalers because they're kind of the only people using like an eight socket configuration. Well, uh, Sapphire Rapids finally gets rid of that weird, weird situation where you had kind of, you know, generation two and a half and generation three. And now it's just all Gen 4 and, um, and Sapphire Rapids does all that. And Sapphire Rapids has enough cores and the cores are good enough that in many cases, you may not even need to have a four socket or even a two socket configuration. In fact, I think that Intel is going to sell a ton of single socket Xeons in the fourth generation because they're just really, really good. They're also, incidentally, lower power than the AMD systems. Um, And and as uh, Serve the Home shows, uh, the whole system ends up being lower powered even though it delivers the performance of like a dual socket and a single socket, which is just great uh, overall. So I think that's going to be a really compelling use case. I think, yes, yeah, some people are going to st- step up to a dual socket, but a lot of those are going to be systems that maybe would have been a four socket earlier, or maybe would have been an expensive dual socket solution. Now there may be a cheaper dual socket. Similarly, the, the, the ones who need the absolute most cores, uh, well, they can do an eight core uh, Sapphire Rapid system, and uh, that includes all the PCI times eight, all the memory times eight, all the CXL times eight. And again, another weird thing about CXL is that AMD only supports CXL on a subset of the PCIe lanes, but Intel supports it on all the lanes. Intel so far only allows you to have four mem- or expansion modules over CXL, but again, I think that that's going to be uh, in- increased in the future. And essentially, back to what I started with here, Sapphire Rapids is the everything platform because it goes all the way from single socket workstation and single socket, you know, uh, embedded IoT device, all the way up to eight socket monster memory monster device with accelerators and and CXL and, um, and Optane memory and all this kind of stuff. Everything is supported. And will or will be supported soon. So again, that's, I think, kind of the the angle and the way to look at this. Yeah, AMD still hasn't beat in terms of the number of cores per socket and some of this other stuff, but Intel has put together a platform that is essentially competitive everywhere AMD plays and beyond.
0: Uh, Speaking of things that are coming up in 2023, we had a couple of uh, interesting events that we want to make sure you're aware of. The first one, of course, is Near and dear to my heart, it's a Networking Field Day. Uh, we're going to be having Networking Field Day, the 30th edition, uh, next week, uh, January 18th through the 20th. Uh, you can tune into to techfieldday.com to learn a little bit more about who's presenting and who will be there. And then the week after that, Stephen will be out in Silicon Valley for um, Cloud Field Day 16. Uh, we'll have uh, great presentations from great companies there as well. That will be happening uh, January 25th and 26th. And then of course, Stephen, there's one big thing that we're excited to announce, and I'm gonna let you take that one.
1: Yep, um, we are doing the first ever Edge Field Day in February, which is going to be a very, very cool event. We've got a bunch of companies in the edge compute space. And also I'm happy to announce that we're gonna be doing a CXL themed uh, Tech Field Day event in March. So please do keep an eye out there. Uh, check out the CXL, uh, po- utilizing CXL podcast and, uh, and keep an eye on Tech Field Day and Gestalt IT for more announcements about Edge and CXL absolutely and make sure that you stay tuned
0: to the rundown we will be here every wednesday at twelve thirty eastern time to bring you more great news about all of the great things happening in tech and maybe sometimes some of the not so great things but we like to try to keep it positive as much as we can around here um if you have a story that you'd like us to cover please make sure you tweet at gestalt it use the hashtag rundown you can also follow us in your favorite podcast application of choice if you prefer to get your news in the audio variety Uh, But we'll be back next week with uh, more great stuff. So until then, thanks for tuning in. Take care, and we will see you soon.